Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's show is brought to you by a friendly match of pickleball. We're on that in a minute. Today, I find you again at the end of a, a very long day, and we are again hiring. We've had an absolutely massive Q1 at Dynamite Jobs, and we're looking to hire another developer. So our last developer was a listener of the pod, and that worked out really well. So uh, the two best ways to hire are to go to dynamitejobs.com or to start a podcast. (laughs) So there you go. Hopefully one of you out there is looking for a full stack development job or know someone who is. It's always great when we get a member of the community to come join the team, and we are growing Fast every week at Dynamite Jobs, thousands of new candidate profiles are created, and we need someone to help us build product that will go directly into their hands. So if that sounds like you, head on over to dynamitejobs.com. In the search bar, type in Dynamite Jobs, and our jobs will come up. Cool. That's it. Let's get moving on to today's show, which the theme of which is vulnerability, the power of owning it and using that knowledge to progress personally and in your business. So I first met today's guest, Dana Lindell, at the TMBA Villa in Bali many years ago. Go way back in the archive if you want to hear about those oh-so-many-good times. At that time, Dana was living in Bali, and he also met his wife at that time. And now we have come full circle, now living in the great city of Austin, Texas. Now, Dana is an OG in our community, the Dynamite Circle, well-known for his outreach businesses, which have the legendary moniker, starting with Legendary Legion, which is now evolving into Legendary Podcasts. And today you're going to hear why, what has changed in the lead gen business. And before I get into this one, I just want to give a big up to Dana for the openness and honesty of this interview. It's some open kimono stuff. And I love that. We're going to see behind the scenes of a productized services business. So let's roll back the tape on where it all started for Dana, along with some reflections on being back in the U.S. I was all in on the digital nomad lifestyle. I left the U.S. basically what I thought was permanently at the age of 21 and just moved to Bali. And that's, you know, where I started all this whole journey. I was living abroad for the past 13 years. I even went down rabbit holes of what would it look like to give up my citizenship and get a better one or a different one, at least one with less tax. It wasn't really a cost thing, though. When I was living abroad, especially with the corporate structure that we had at the time, it was just prohibitively difficult to hire Americans. There was all these extra hoops that we had to jump through. And there was pretty bad, actually, tax implications for us, for companies like the structure that I had that just made it kind of a no-go to hire within the U.S. So I built the entire company around that. And I moved back to the U.S. in June of last year. It was a move that was related to my wife getting her green card. So I know that Regardless of whether we like it or not, we're here for the next three years because her goal is to get a passport and she's the one who's going to end up upgrading her passport to an American passport. So it's a different rabbit hole than my original rabbit hole of giving up a passport. Now we're on like the greatest hits of TMBA podcast issues. One is passport inequity. You know, if you end up like living abroad in a country where you start a relationship with people or, or hire employees who have different passports than you. 
There's travel inequities there. We can't have team retreats in certain countries. You know, just stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not even the fact that she has more restrictive entry requirements than I do. It's that oftentimes the process that we need to both go to to enter a country is completely different and we're both doing completely different things to get in. And it's just, it makes things a hassle. But anyway, so we, we moved back to the U.S. and it started opening my mind up again of, well, maybe we should be hiring within the U.S. And whenever we started to do job posts, we just started to kind of split test things. And we would do our normal job posts that were not focused on the U.S. And we did a few in the U.S. as well. And for the roles that we're looking to hire for, primarily, we were finding a pretty large gap in salary, as well as not as large of a gap in terms of overall skills and motivation and things like that, especially combined with the fact that we just have a lot of additional things that we need to do to hire somebody within the U.S., whereas it's pretty easy to hire outside of the U.S. And if skills are comparable and cost is lower, then it's just a win all around. Sometimes when I speak with folks I've known a long time, it like flags up all these kinds of themes I've seen in our community over the years, which is especially in the mid range. Americans tend to be have like this very North American mindset because not a lot of us leave. And it's not always the case with our international staff who are more at the top end of their potential educational spectrums or their financial spectrums. And so you call this kind of like digerati of like digital nomads who you can see it in other industries like global health or diplomacy or military, where there's this class of people who are hyper internationalized. And I think in the bootstrapping entrepreneurship community, that's become a thing. Even if the average Filipino VA doesn't typically travel to the West often, they travel there intellectually often. And so there is this kind of idea that people that are part of this sort of global digital movement of location independence, like you can get more of that mindset at an earlier price point by going abroad. I think that's really true. Yeah. Especially for a place like the Philippines, which they have a long relationship with the U.S. and the U.S. culture is definitely apparent on the ground in the Philippines. Yeah. It's one of those things that works only in one direction. You very rarely come across an American who just knows about all the places that you've been as a digital nomad. Like one of the first things that really surprised me about moving here to Texas is I would just walk into a room and I would say something that seemed innocent or not something that would raise eyebrows to people. And people would just look at me like I was crazy because they didn't have the same sort of a sense of experience. One example that pops to mind is I was explaining how when you fly into Mexico City, which is not too crazy of a place to go, but how the urban sprawl just goes on forever. Like you're descending in the plane and you just never see the city end. And the thing that I compared it to was like, you know how when you fly into Istanbul and that same thing happens, like the city never ends and people all looked at me like, no, what's Istanbul? And I've made that same comparison within my team. And even the people who had never been or flown into that airport before all sort of just had a sense for why that would be the case. Quick thoughts on living in the U.S. versus being a digital nomad. Man, so I really resisted it for a long time. I There were periods of my life where I thought I would just not never come back, but never actually live here again. I'm liking it more than I thought I would. Some things help. I have a big truck and plans to buy a bigger truck. And even certain things like buying the truck and getting it for 0% financing for six years, that's a very uniquely American thing, like access to money is very easy here compared to other countries, particularly when you're in a country that you're not 
a resident of or a citizen of. Knowing how things work compared to being a digital nomad or being a new person in a country that I don't have a lot of experience with, you have to figure a lot of things out. I want to use buzz terms or try to be descriptive as possible. But when we both left the United States originally, we were in our 20s. You were in your late teens. We weren't like powerful economic actors, people with a, a ton of flexibility in terms of what we could do in the United States. And moving to other countries, at least for me, seemed I instantly got a lot more of that. I could afford a lot more things is a simple way to put it. It's kind of interesting coming back to the United States after having some economic success. We just be able to boil this all down to money, Dana, and say that the reality is, is living the lifestyles that we build up, location independent, financially independent, stuff like that. It's just a lot more expensive to do in the U.S. It's just a matter of money. It certainly is, but I think that there's an extent to that, right? You can be very happy in the U.S. without that much money. And somebody who has a lot more than you or I is not necessarily any happier. But you're definitely right. I was a construction worker when I was 20 years old before I left the, the U.S. I was not making a lot of money. I was working really hard and I saved up $1,000 and moved to Bali. I couldn't have imagined just taking $1,000 and moving even to the little podunk town in the U.S. and expecting things to really work out for me. But somehow I showed up in Bali not knowing the language, not knowing anything, big, obvious looking foreigner, and just <laughs> made things work somehow. I had difficulty and I had to figure out how to make an income. But it definitely was much easier due to the fact that I didn't need to earn as much. And now that I come back to the US, having started a business and having more money, everything is a whole lot easier. It certainly wasn't as easy to buy a car financed when I was 19, 20 years old and I didn't have a good credit score and I didn't have all these things to back me up and show that I was, was trustworthy. So, you know, I felt not like a criminal as I was buying my car at 19, 20 years old, but I didn't feel like I was being catered to in the same way that they definitely changed their approach to how they were talking to me in the dealership after they ran my credit score. And then everything got a whole lot easier. So let's reconnect with a 21-year-old Dana in Bali. He's come to a pool party at the TMBA Villa, joined a mastermind in our online community, and is hustling, actually very successfully, to get work as a freelance writer. Well, I could take this writing and turn it into like an email outreach service where I can use my copywriting skills to convince people to get on the phone. So I started to do this for myself internally to get new clients for my writing. Someone else who was a part of the DC at the time recommended, why don't you go to AngelList or Crunchbase? Because all these companies have just received a lot of funding and they're ready to spend on marketing. So reach out to them and pitch them what you got. You're a marketer. And it was through doing that that I booked a lot of calls for myself. I was getting a lot of positive responses. I was also living in Thailand at the time though. So I was up late in the middle of the night trying to take calls of people, just trying to see if they were interested in my services. And it didn't always really work out. I didn't sign any clients that way. But one day I got an email back from someone who said, hey, we're not interested in your copywriting services, but this email that you sent us, it's fantastic. Would you consider doing this for us as a service? And it helped me formulate the idea. And I actually took it to the DC and said, hey, I've got this idea of how I can help businesses to get more sales appointments and find more leads. I'd like to test it for five people on a trial and see if my system that I built for myself can work for anyone else. So I launched that and I realized pretty quickly that 
wow, I can't actually do all this work by myself because all my past experience had been, I sign on a customer for something that I have the skill set to do. And I go and do that, I get paid and I have no expenses. And that was actually the thing that in my mastermind caused someone to say, you don't have a business as they asked me, what are your expenses? And I said, well, I don't have any. And they said, you don't have a business. They actually told me to go get a job at Applebee's. That's brutal, dude. It was pretty brutal, yeah. And I took a big risk on it actually is I hired a couple of people before we even had revenue because I needed to see if this actually worked for the people that I was doing it for as a trial run. And it was towards the end of the year of 2014. So I did a end of year discount of, based on prices that didn't exist at the time anyways. Sure. And brought on a bunch of people and took off to India to actually, to just sort of like go backpacking around the country. Cause I'd been before, was always sort of blown away by the place wanted to go back, but could never really find the, the right time. And it was a really new and unique experience to me of getting up in the morning, checking on things quickly, making sure everything was going okay, and then taking off for the day and letting them do all the work. I'd never experienced that before because as a freelancer, if I wasn't working, I wasn't making any money. How did that business progress? We started to grow pretty quickly and started to charge a little bit more and a little bit more for our services. But for several years, we were both kind of stuck at a plateau. It was either around like 10 employees, and these are mostly overseas people who are a bit cheaper, or around the $15,000 a month mark in terms of, of revenue. And it just seemed so difficult to get past there. Like every time we would get some customers that would get us past there, a couple would drop out. And I was also very motivated to just have a nice lifestyle. I had spent several years in Bali before I met all the people that I met and figured out how to actually run a business living on a fairly low budget. And that was what I liked about Bali is that back in 2014, you could live a great life really cheaply. And I didn't really see a lot of the need at the time to go what I thought would be a very stressful situation of trying to figure out how do we get past this plateau when I was perfectly happy and having a great life doing exactly what we were doing. So I optimized for that. I was really happy with the life that I had created for myself and the business of that. Yeah, you're making $150,000 a year in sales. You can optimize your expenses pretty good and have a lot of money left over to have a great lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. So I was never super motivated to solve all those problems that would get us to the next level. But then a couple other things happened that were more circumstantial. One is the GDPR came along and literally almost wiped us out overnight. What was that again? GDPR is the EU data regulation. The simplified version of it basically says that you can't store any customer data that can identify a person to their data without their permission. So it only extends to the data of EU citizens, but it still affects companies who are in the US. So if I'm holding the data of an EU citizen and they have an issue with it, I can get fined. I didn't think it was going to affect our business at all, actually, because we had a couple of European customers at the time who we told, hey, you need to either stop outreach in Europe and switch to the US or we can't help you anymore. And I thought that was going to be the extent of it. But it was an overall email algorithm change. When you say struggling with the business, do you mean like one day you woke up, you're going on trips to India, you're making a decent living. Now, all of a sudden, your clients are just like, WTF, I'm not getting any leads anymore. We're going to cancel. Yeah. And we've experimented and, and used a lot of different models for our business at the time of how we charge for the leads, whether that's on retainer or on performance. At the time, we were fully on performance. So basically, when the leads stopped coming in, so did the money. 
and the team still needs to be paid. The team was working harder than ever trying to figure out ways to get around this or set up new campaigns. And I was hiring consultants and trying to figure things out. Because for my side of things, what we were doing operationally hadn't changed at all. It was just the landscape around us that had changed. So what did you do? What year was this that this kind of existential crisis happened? This was the summer of 2018. To add a little bit of insult to injury, I was living in the EU at the time. So I was like just a little bit more. So you had like had a good kind of call it three year, four year run there where you had like just a solid lifestyle agency. Is that a fair way to put it? Like a productized service lifestyle agency? Yeah, exactly. What do you think is the best amount of revenue to have for the least stress in your business? Not all revenue is created equal. Not all revenue is created equal. That's one consideration. The other consideration I thought it was what drew it out in your business is a lot of people sort of assume it's 10,000 bucks a month, which is what you're representing. You're representing $15,000 a month revenue. A lot of people think that's kind of the magic number. And having like recently built a business through those levels, one of the things that really jumps out to me about those lower revenue levels is the fragility of the business. Exactly. Yeah. So there was a lot of periods of the business where when you have a down month or you might take a small loss in a month that gets recouped in the, the following month, like it's a lot more stressful when you're dealing with those, at least to me, it felt really stressful dealing with those smaller revenue amounts because it was such a large percentage, but also it represented just how fragile the business really was. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done for you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero risk hiring option. If you don't really know about the long-term fit, or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. So you had these kind of three, four years of I started a productized service. I lived the kind of lifestyle business basic framework of making 10 grand a month. And you have a hell of a travel resume during that same time period. And then GDPR comes along, the landscape completely changes. Cold email is a lot harder now. What do you do in that era to adjust to this challenge? So at the time we switched and went fully in on LinkedIn because in our eyes, that was the easiest way for us to pivot our skill set. Our skill set being how to target people correctly and manually, how to 
write an email or a message that can get a positive response out of just about anybody. And the process was a little bit different, but we just kind of knew that it would just be about switching everything from email over to LinkedIn. So we did that and it was, it went pretty well, but it was shortly after that, that I started to get really burnt out on the lead gen industry in general, just because more tools were coming out to help people to do LinkedIn automation easier. And when you've got a tool that costs $50 a month and you can basically just spam everyone by setting a few filters and writing a few half-assed messages, that's exactly what people do. And it makes it so much harder for people who want to do it more intelligently or with a bit more tact to actually stand out. You got squeezed. Yeah, it still worked. We still were bringing in customers. The one thing that I did realize about the lead gen industry, or at least for the types of customers that we were working with, was that a lot of times people would come to us as, please save our business. Because they were coming to us thinking that the only problem that they had in their business was we don't have enough leads. And if we just had more leads, we'd have more sales. And there's a lot of these companies that their issues run deeper than that. Why don't you have any leads? Well, maybe you don't have product market fit with what you're selling. And certainly there's things that we could have done on our side to better filter for customers that don't have those issues and go after new markets. But I was already starting to just get burnt out. I was considering doing all this hard work to overhaul things to get back to where we were before. I even flagged it up in our an internal conversation like a few months ago where if you're diagnosing the problem is we don't have enough leads, it's like a polarized thing. You could be in a great spot or a really bad spot. There's <laughs> not a lot. It's typically not like that productive of an analysis. I find like it's often on the desperation end. Okay. Walk us through what you do then. This is interesting. How do you adjust? So we had started adding an upsell to our lead gen services through a partner that I had found who booked people on the podcast. It paired really well. I would say maybe half of the people who signed up for our lead gen services also wanted to be on podcasts. And I didn't know how to get people onto podcasts. So we just, okay, we'll use the partner. And that worked well enough for a while. And this was in 2019. And my wife and I made the decision, we're gonna start the green card process. We started that at the end of 2019 with the goal of, we had an interview set for March, 2020. And probably everyone knows where this story's going at this point. But our plan was we're going to move to the U.S. And this was my time to say, okay, it's really time to get serious with this as a business. Uh, this is no longer a lifestyle business for us. We're moving to a place where a lifestyle business is not going to support us. So I ended the year of 2019 with a big grand plan of how we're going to grow out the business and how we're going to focus on the right types of customers finally. And we're going to use the podcast company that we're working with to, you know, fulfill that side of things. And I was feeling really, really good about things. And then obviously COVID happened and COVID was very difficult for a lot of people in the agency space because people stopped spending. So anyone who had started working with us, or we often make sales at the end of Q4 that start until January. Cause it's like, well, you don't want to launch your outreach campaign like December 1st and then run for two weeks while people are focused on the holidays. Right. So every year at the start of the year, we'd have a bunch of people who start. And I would say 90% of the people who started in January canceled. So we lost a lot of revenue. Things went really sideways for us. It was really difficult. I had to, I didn't make any layoffs, but I had to make a couple of people on my team go part-time. I tried launching a productized service on the side, uh, also related to, to lead gen. It was an interesting learning experience. It's probably more of a lesson now these days than it was at the time, because I've realized a lot about how I tend to approach 
selling a new service and how it tends to be high labor. I'm good at putting people into a position to provide a service or here's a problem that we can solve. I'll get somebody to go in and do that. But then it's the operational things that come along with it. And we start to grow too large while the revenue isn't there to cover everything. So what do you mean by that is your conception of the productized services always you're conceiving of what's the most we can do rather than what's the least we can do. I'm not a super techie guy. So I've always been focused on how we can build a process and put people into it and provide the service that way. So every business that I've ever run, we've employed more people than we probably, than maybe our competitors do. And it's just maybe my lack of organization or just the way that I go about things. But I've noticed that. And it was particularly the productized service that existed for a short period of time. But I ended up selling it last year. It wasn't a huge sale. It wasn't life-changing money. It was more of just, this thing is taking up my mental bandwidth. Let me just sell it for five figures and not have to deal with it anymore. But the, the lead gen business started to take off again for us, which is also why we, I stopped focusing on the, the productized service. But then at the end of 2020, our podcast booking partner just sort of like fell off a cliff. It was weird. They were responding to us, but they weren't doing anything. And our customers were upset because they weren't getting on any podcast and they just, you know, kept providing us with excuses. So I started to look around for a new partner and someone on my team said, why are you looking for a partner? This is exactly what we do. It utilizes all of our core skills of reaching out to people and good copywriting, how to find anyone's email address. And we can do this all in house. So I stopped looking for a partner and I figured out how do we just start selling this as a service? And the interesting thing is compared to cold email outreach for podcasting is a much more aligned strategy between the sender and the recipient. Whereas with a cold email scenario, even if you write the best cold email in the world that really hits, it's still, I'm a guy, I've got a service, I want to sell it. I'm going to send this email to you. I hope you're interested. And if you are, we're going to get on a call. It was once we started to launch that model on performance where we charge a setup fee and then it was basically just a per placement fee on podcasts. And it was around the same time last year when I had just moved to Austin and I was acting as the sole salesperson for the company. And I was doing about eight to nine hours a day of Zoom calls of trying to sell the service because that's the level of bookings I was able to get for myself through our- And how much were you charging for it at the time? For like, what was the basic rate? At the time we were charging a $500 setup fee and then $150 success fee for every placement onto a podcast. But I was getting super burnt out. I was having to hire more people. I was still spending all this time on Zoom, trying to hustle up new sales, as well as hire new people and, and run the company. I was really getting burnt out. Uh, so I brought on a junior salesperson to start taking the discovery calls off of my plate so that I was only talking with people who understood the service offering already and were more ready to buy. That worked too well because he basically booked 100% of the people with me for the next sales call and we still made sales, but it got to a point where I realized, all right, this guy's just got to take over the sales. I can't do this anymore. I'm literally about to like, I would end a Zoom call and then like just let out a scream in my room. And then be like, okay, next Zoom call. Because I just needed to like let a little bit of tension out. Like it's hard to be that back-to-back -back on not just Zoom calls, but. Which is weird because isn't this what you always want as a business owner? You finally, what month are we in where this moment where people are just chucking money your direction? This was June, 2021. It was weird because like, this is the thing that I've been striving for all this time. Like I'm, I'm getting the team in place. We're finally achieving a level of sales and the, a number of new customers that I'd never seen before. I should be happier. 
than this, but I was stressed. Like I was really stressed at the time with everything that I had going on. And it was a little bit better once the other guy started to take over sales, but he wasn't a great sales guy. He was definitely better at the discovery calls. And I was in a mastermind with a couple of people who are both members of the the DC. And they kept asking me, why don't you hire like a more proper salesperson? And my role within the company switched over from being the sales guy and trying to run the company to all of a sudden now I'm sales manager while also trying to run the company at the same time. While this was all going on, we were also launching a new service in the background because a lot of our podcast booking customers were asking us to help them launch a podcast. And we thought, okay, we'll do this, but we don't want to just be like a a podcast production company that's pretty commoditized at this point. So we also combine that with, again, like a common theme with how I structure the businesses that I run and launch is I try to focus on the core skill set that we have and how we can make that core skill set fit in with other marketable skills or services. So rather than focus our production service on the production itself, we focus it on all the other elements of what we do for them, which is helping them to go out and actually find the guests for the show. We also pre-interview those guests to make sure that they have a good idea of what they're going to talk about. They have the right equipment and we do a cheat sheet for our customers so that they can just show up like if they want to just 10 minutes before the episode begins and they have everything they need to host the show. We publish it, we produce it, we create promotional graphics. So it's really like host your own podcast in an hour a week so that we can go after a higher level of customer who's going to be willing to pay a lot more for it than the type of person who just wants to pay 400 bucks a month to get their four episodes a month produced. The thing that I like about it is that unlike a lead gen campaign, let's say that we generate 15 leads for somebody. It doesn't result in a sale for them after they've gotten on 15 calls, which is something that happens and it's, you know, people will sometimes come back and say, well, the lead sucked and it's maybe, but it's your responsibility to close the sale. It's always this kind of back and forth of like, why didn't it turn into what we wanted it to? Whereas this is, people started because they want to create new strategic partnerships. They want to make, you know, better high level connections within their industry. That's a goal of those. The deal is clear, which is like you get on the podcast. But at the same time, you still have a podcast that took you an hour a week to produce. So for a lot of companies, like the worst case scenario is maybe we don't make a huge strategic partnership within our company from this podcast this year, but we still have this long-term content asset that we can be promoting and acting as brand awareness for the company. The meta theme of your episode is like the struggles of growth. So you were at this one phase of business where you manage everything and it was like almost like a facsimile of a good job just on the entrepreneurial side of the fence where it's like you, instead of going and working at a bank or being a lawyer, you kind of just have like these 10 people that work in different systems in your income and you make a few sales and you go on a few trips and you modeled like the great job just with a lot more freedom. And now it feels like what you're doing is you're pushing it into this phase where you're like building an enterprise. And I'm curious as to what the stumbling blocks have been for you. I could break down the, the three biggest problems being not having enough insight into our financials combined with me just like not having a great financial intelligence background. When does financial information become important for you? At what revenue level are you thinking? I would say it's not necessarily at the revenue level, because if you can have your revenue very high and your costs are pretty low, then it still probably isn't all that important. I think where it really started to get tricky for us 
is we had always run the company on a cash basis form of accounting. And we started to bring on people where yeah, the podcast is 3000 or 3500 a month and there's a setup fee. But if you pay us up front for the six months, we'll waive the setup fee. So now all of a sudden we're taking on payments of 20,000 at a time. They're coming in and like the cash basis of accounting throws all that off, right? Like it's, we didn't earn. Because you're representing the income when you earned it rather than when you're deploying. Yeah, exactly. You're not amortizing the income over the months. It took me a long time for the accrual basis stuff to actually like make sense in my lizard brain to understand that we didn't just make $20,000 from this customer this month. We have their money in the bank. And I feel kind of dumb saying that, honestly, because it's so obvious. But at the same time, I think a lot of people miss this. And as well, just things were moving so fast within the company at the time. We were hiring like crazy that it just sort of like was a thought that I kept pushing off. Combined with not putting better processes in place and just thinking like, well, we'll just throw more labor at it because we're too busy to overhaul the system. But we had a good hiring mm -hmm. funnel in place that made it really easy to just bring new people in. So we started 2021 at six people and we ended at 38. It wow. got out of control. I, I had no idea at the beginning of the year that I would end with that many people under my employee on my team. Like I could never have imagined that. And I'm not sure I ever want to get back to that level of, of team size again, which is a spoiler for the fact that we had some turbulence and we had to let some of them go this year. And we didn't make it barely midway through January before I realized either I need to make cuts from the team right now and really dive in and start fixing our processes and making this all more efficient. And if I don't do that, we're just done. And of course I, you know, chose to let some people go rather than just shutting things down, but it was extremely difficult. I've worked with these people, some of them for quite a long time. And it was 17 people that we let go. So we dropped from 38 to, to 21. And letting 17 people go in one day was one of the hardest days I've ever had as an entrepreneur. What sounds like happened to me, look, I'm making theories staying on top of your narrative here, but is that you've got thrust into a situation where you were a business owner with 10 people that worked for you and making that salary. And you got thrust into more of a, an executive role all of a sudden. And there is a kind of a, a theory, uh, theoretical practices to being an executive that become important. And I think finance is one of them. And so there's this quote that Taylor Pearson included in his newsletter recently. It's a Fred Wilson quote. And he says, a CEO does only three things. Number one, sets the overall vision and strategy of the company and communicates it to all stakeholders. Number two, recruits, hires, and retains the very best talent for the company. And number three, make sure there is always enough cash in the bank. And I think that's interesting because I was sitting with one part of our operation today with a cash flow spreadsheet. And there's part of it that's like our real numbers. And then there's part of it that are like theoretical projection numbers, like where we're basically saying like, we expect this much cash to come in and here's where it's allocated and here's how it's amortized over the client, all this kind of stuff. And I just remember thinking, this is executive function. Like there's no bookkeeper that's going to do this for you. There's no accountant. Like you have to understand every functional area of the business to make this cash flow spreadsheet. And something we used to talk about early on in the days, because we used to run an e-com company, which required more discipline of us than our current co companies. That, that's changing for us right now. But I just want to flag it up as I think it's really interesting that you share that story and that I think it's one of these things that like it's really tempting to ignore because 
it feels like so intimidating. It's like people who are in debt, you know, and they, they don't want to look at their personal finances and where they're spending the money and stuff. It's the same thing with business. It's going to be ugly when we look under the hood, but it's also that sense of empowerment when you take control of the books and you take control of the cash flow spreadsheets and you say, I'm going to plug some numbers in here and see what they look like. And then I'm going to try to see if there's a world in which I can create these numbers and work backwards from ideals and work upwards from the reality, from the reals. Your takeaway is correct that I just had this sort of like this lifestyle agency that was a a good job for me. And I was happy there. And that was where I lived. And then all of a sudden I was thrust into the situation where I needed to employ a level of skills that I hadn't quite developed. And that's what I've been spending a lot of my time this year doing. So I've read numerous books already in Q1 of this year on finance and financial intelligence. And I have a much better handle on things. It's interesting, like how I can be reading these books and things are, by the way, much better for us in March of 2022 when we're recording this and they were in, in January. Like we've really turned things around a lot in the past two months, but how I could be reading a book and understanding a financial concept and realizing how fucked we actually are, but how the new knowledge that I'm gaining is empowering me to like feel confident in myself of we're never going to do that again. That's not, that's never going to be the issue that we fall victim to again, because now I'm armed with the knowledge to avoid that. And it's like a weird thing in my head of I'm upset about the state of things, but I'm optimistic about turning things around. Big ups, big shout out to Dana Lindell. You can check him out at legendarypodcast.com. And that's it for today for this not so legendary podcast. We'll be back as always next Thursday, 8 a.m. Eastern time as usual. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.